written on as I read Acts chapter 1, verses, or 2 rather, verses 1 through 13. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men, or there were dwelling, uh, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and, and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. And let us... Pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this testimony of, uh, well, with, with, without a question, the mightiest revival we, we ever, the world has ever known, and that's Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this momentum, uh, this momentous uh, occasion longed for by the saints of old, and even these very disciples now come to fruition in their lives, and we, we the heirs and recipients uh, of it, God, we ask you that now through the preaching you might open it up to us, and that we might, well, that we might uh, see the, the share that we have in it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. We come here to uh, this momentous day in the whole history of the redemption, uh, the whole history, I mean, of redemption and of the church. Uh, something which uh, I have suggested belongs together with the great facts of redemption as recorded in the Gospels. Uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then add to the list Pentecost. And really, beginning with the cross, you have those four things. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There are the pivotal moments that, uh, that, that bring about the new covenant. The pivotal moments that bring about the situation and the state of affairs in which we now live. We live in the new covenant. We are, uh, we are the recipients of these promises. We are partakers of the church. We are the body of Christ. All of that hinges upon what we have here. What occurred on the day of Pentecost. Uh, very briefly, there are associations with the Old Testament. Uh, we've seen that in Exodus and Leviticus, the day of Pentecost. I don't, I don't want to go into the details of that at all, just to note that it happened on that day. 
We also know uh, from uh, the background in Acts chapter 1 that this was something, though, Jesus did not define the timing of. And there really does seem to be significance in that. Simply, he told them to look and to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And, 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 and really to do nothing until that time occurred. Although we see what happens once it does occur. We see suddenly these men ablaze with zeal and, and holy activity. And, uh, and, and that's really going to become the record of Acts. I would just remind you, and I have to remind myself, we don't get to Acts 2, but by way of Acts chapter 1. We find these men gathered together, praying, obeying their Lord. And it's in such a state that the Lord comes to them. Well, as a first point, uh, I want to review four points from a prior sermon. Uh, a sermon on a- Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Because these four points are foundational to our understanding, in particular, of Pentecost. Understanding Pentecost as baptism with the Holy Spirit. You remember Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 uh, that... Uh, He told them to wait for the promise of the Father, verse 4, and then he says, You've heard uh, from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so they were to look for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's what this was. This was, Pentecost was the promised baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that led to these three points from Dr. Gaffin in Perspectives on Pentecost, and then a final point of my own. And these, I think, are foundational to our understanding of Pentecost and Acts, and even to this sermon. The first was, uh, I'm briefly reviewing these, Pentecost and Christ. Uh, Let us notice that Christ, John predicts, Jesus says, and, and we actually see, in fact, it is Christ who baptizes with the Spirit. It isn't the Spirit who baptizes, but it is Christ who baptizes with the Spirit. Although, interestingly, we see Paul in another place saying that it is the Spirit who baptizes us into the body of Christ. So we are capable of this varied expression. Uh, but uh, really the point that Peter will later be making uh, in his Pentecost sermon that we have to appreciate is that Jesus Christ, not merely by virtue of his incarnation, but by virtue of his resurrection and ascension, was endowed with the Spirit and pours out the gift of the Spirit on the church. That's what was happening here. Christ is the one who baptizes. But even beyond that, as we saw in that sermon, it is Christ who through the Spirit abides with the church. You remember what he said in John. He says, I go to the Father, but I come to you. And he says that in the context of the spirit, the promised comforter, so that when Christ says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he really means it. He dwells, he abides with the church through the gift of the spirit. Paul even says in another place, by virtue of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he becomes the life-giving spirit. And as the life-giving spirit, he dwells and fills his church. And so the first point being Pentecost in Christ. But that leads very naturally to the second point. Of review, in the, and that is Pentecost and the church. As Dr. Gaffin says, I think very helpfully, Pentecost is the establishment of the church. Now, admittedly, this is something of a more narrow definition of the church. We recognize uh, that the church goes all the way back to Adam. If we, if we are to describe the church in terms of its universal and invisible structure, the church consists of all the elect in every age, going all the way back to Adam and his wife. And some of his sons, though not all. But if we are to look at the church more narrowly as that which uh, is 
uh, a building that God is constructing in the new covenant. Indeed, as a worldwide building. Uh, even then, I'm speaking in spiritual terms. Uh, then we see that Pentecost is the beginning of that. And I'll just leave that point there because that's a point that will be, uh, that will be filled out later. Pentecost is the establishment of the church. Number three, Pentecost and the believer. What we need to see is that Pentecost, or, or rather spirit baptism, is the believer's share in Pentecost after the fact. And this occurs when he believes. In other words, if we are to understand Pentecost as uh, the church's baptism with the spirit by Christ, as he promised, the question which emerges uh, in light of Pentecostal teaching is when is the believer following this fact baptized with the Holy Spirit, if not at Pentecost? And the answer is when he believes plain and simple, not afterwards. We're not looking for a second experience that we call baptism in the spirit that we may look for second experiences the believer's share in Pentecost occurs at the moment he believes and is uh, engrafted into Christ. By one spirit, we've been baptized into one body. First Corinthians chapter 12. But beyond that, the paradigm for the believer's experience of the spirit following spirit baptism at conversion is being filled. Paul says uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, or be being filled with the Spirit. And so understanding that at conversion, the believer is baptized in the Spirit and so made to partake of Pentecost, in the same way by faith he is made to partake of Christ's work on the cross, he's united to that historical event. Following that, he may look for further experiences of the Spirit, which we call being filled, not baptism. Indeed, that's always his duty. It's what he's always to look for. He's always to be filled with the Spirit, be being filled with the Spirit. That's his present continuous duty. But then as a fourth point, which takes me beyond Gaffin, though I think this is relevant in light of my understanding of Acts, that is Pentecost and revival. And the point that I would make is that, and that I have already made, is that Pentecost is the pattern of subsequent revival with certain key peculiarities unique to itself. In other words, we will say of Pentecost itself that like the cross, like the resurrection, like the ascension, it is unique, it is unrepeatable. It is one of the, the facts of the history of salvation or the Historia Salutis. It belongs in a class of its own. You cannot repeat Pentecost. It is very important that we see that or we will open ourselves to all sorts of errors. We ought to see the foundational once for all nature of Pentecost. But having said that, I believe we are entitled to say that at the same time, there are certain features of Pentecost that do repeat themselves in the long history of the church. And, and those are the features that you find in seasons of revival, such as you find, for instance, uh, in the Reformation and in the first and second great awakenings. Not only are we entitled to say that, well, we find certain key features again, by the way, I will define those later what they are repeating themselves. But we are entitled at the same time to look for such things in our own day, finding them not only in acts, but in these other times of general awakening. 
when the outpouring of the Spirit is not limited to individuals, but is poured out on entire churches and entire communities. That's what we call revival. Certainly, that's what we're seeing here. The, the Spirit is not just being outpoured on a few, but it's a general outpouring. Well, that brings me to a second point, and that is considerations or key considerations based upon the text which is before us. There's several things to notice here. The first thing that I would notice before I say the first thing about the Spirit at Pentecost is the state of the believers on that day. What we notice here is something that I noticed last time, and that's the unity of believers. This is the kind of thing that you can't, uh, or at least you shouldn't so easily overlook. We read that when the day had come, they were all with one accord in one place. I emphasized this last time, so I emphasize it again. And, I, and I, I have the sense, well, I know that throughout Acts, I'll have ample opportunity to emphasize it again and again. One thing that I found that was interesting is that uh, the commentators, or at least the main commentator I've been using, F.F. F. Bruce, uh, was prepared to overlook this point entirely. He didn't even mention it. But I find great significance here uh, because it mirrors what we read in Acts chapter 1. We find it again here. We'll find it again and again and again. It, it, it seems as though this was a point of special significance to Luke, something that he was highlighting for us to see in his many descriptions of the church. Look at these believers, he's saying. Look how they were brought together. Look how they were standing together. Look how they were united Luke is saying to us that we cannot conceive of the church. We cannot speak of the church and then really we can't be a part of the church unless we see her unity. And so this is something that is uh, quite obviously, I would say, a controlling thought of Luke. He's always mentioning it. And the history of the church then supported this notion. I realize that the history since not so much. But the history of the church then, at that time, supported this notion. You really could say they were all together with one accord. It was not just an idea or a theory, but a fact. So I'm saying you can't just read those words and pass over them. We should notice them every time. We should underline them. We should see a theology of the church and a model for true Christian fellowship. And then we should ask ourselves this. Did the spirit come when the church was at odds, full of infighting, or when she was at peace with, with herself, looking for his coming? Now, what I find fascinating is how the ESV simply translates this word together. It simply says, when they were in one place together, as though all Luke were saying was that they were all together in one place. But that's not the force of this word, and I'm very happy with uh, what the New King James says. They were all with one accord in one place. I think that's a much better translation. I think that supports uh, the true bearing of the word itself. It isn't just they were together. It, it, the, the sense is that they were unanimous. They were standing together. They were of one mind. Similar to what Paul uh, exhorts the church to be in Philippians chapters 1 and 2. And that's a true picture of the church. Uh, she, she is one. And that unity which she has is something which is visible. It's tangible. Again, it isn't just a theory. It's a fact. 
which is why, as Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us, uh, this little booklet I've been using, uh, What is the Church? It's a sermon Lloyd-Jones preached at some point. He, he emphasizes the unity of the church. Well, having read that and reading Acts, I'm, I'm prepared to agree with him. This is one of the cardinal uh, hallmarks of the church. But this is why Lloyd-Jones tells us that uh, as, as, as Luke will later say, people are added to the church. Isn't that interesting? The idea is that the church already exists. And so when people come in, they're simply added. In other words, the church is not something that only exists once a certain quota is met. It becomes the church once uh, so many people are added to it. No, that's not the idea. The idea is that the church already exists as a unity, and people are added to it. How are they added? By the Spirit joining them to the church, uniting them to this single, indivisible, indivisible body. Every person who is born again of the Spirit is of necessity added to this great body, this great indivisible body. And that's what the church is, and that's the believer's relationship to it. The church is one, and all believers stand together. As part of one body. Is this uh, not something that we confess on a regular basis in the Apostle and Nicene Creed? But that brings me to the next point, And that is how the Spirit comes. This is something which Luke highlights just in a couple verses. Uh, verses 2 through 4. Let me read those again. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well, I notice seven, seven ways that the Spirit comes here. The first as a matter of prophetic fulfillment. This was the promise of the Father. This was the promised spirit baptism. Second, we read him say suddenly, which is something that's always true. When the spirit comes, he comes suddenly, though not, let us see, entirely unexpected. For Jesus had promised this and they were looking for this. And so I would say, though the spirit comes suddenly, he comes uh, at such times and seasons where he is looked for and prayed for. The other thing we see, or, or one of the other things we see as a third point, is that he comes mightily, accompanied with power. He comes forthly as from heaven. He descended upon them. He comes visibly in this case. He comes accompanied with the use of supernatural gifts, namely the speaking of other tongues miraculously. And then also we see, uh, though we don't see it here, we'll see it in Peter's sermon, that it was accompanied with the preaching of God's mighty acts. I, I suppose we do see it here, actually. We hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So they, they were preaching as they were speaking in tongues. They were preaching the mighty acts of God. Which, which ones? Well, they were preaching the, the acts which Peter will later recount and which I've been recounting. This complex of events, the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost. The great and mighty acts of Jesus Christ. What I would notice here from Acts 
is something that's always true in times of uh, an outpouring of the spirit, what we call revival, is that both uh, the medium and the message are always the same, more or less. In other words, whenever you have revival, whenever you have an outpouring of the spirit, it, it always comes through the preaching. What the spirit is producing in the church is uh, fresh power to preach. And he does so by drawing a closer attention to the mighty acts of God, the medium and the message. The medium is the preaching. You can't ever revival apart from the preaching. What was it that sent the world upside down all over again in the Reformation, but the preaching of Luther and of Calvin and so many others? And what was their message? It was the very message of Peter on Pentecost. This is what happens inevitably and invariably when the spirit is poured out. I'm not saying every point here is. I'm not saying uh, that we will visibly and, 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 and uh, we will see visible manifestations and supernatural gifts will occur. Uh, but certain things will be repeatable. I'll have opportunity to expand upon that point later on. Well, what is the significance of these things? These seven points. One is redemptive historical. Again, as a matter of promise. It's significant that this was happening in Jerusalem, in the presence of Jews. Uh, in fact, it, it isn't known for a fact, but it's likely that Peter preached his Pentecost sermon in the temple, in the temple courts. Uh, but to see it in that way as a matter of uh, the, the culmination of this long-expected prophecy uh, and hope of Israel, of, of a new covenant, to see that day dawning now, let us see that it was... The beginning of something greater. This is just the beginning. The unfolding of the new covenant. And what begins here on this day will soon turn the world upside down. And may we also say redemptive historically. That to some extent this is the reversal of Babel. You remember the story of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Let's come together as one man. As one people. And we'll build a tower that reaches into the heavens. And what does the Lord do? He scatters the nations. He divides the nations. But is it not remarkable to see that being the will of God, the stated will of God, that, that, that the nations are not to gather? Here, the nations are encouraged to gather. Not in some world economic forum or league of nations. Not like that. But the message of Babel remains uh, now what it was then. God is not pleased that men should gather as one for the same reason now as it was then. That then their sin is multiplied and heightened to the very heavens as at Babel. But God is pleased that men of all nations should be gathered as one people under the preaching of the apostles. There's one gathering. There's one body which is meant to be global and that's the church. And so do you see that's what God is doing here. He's gathering the nations as it were under the preaching of the gospel. He's reversing the effects of Babel in seed form. Something that will come to full fruition in the new heavens and the new earth. He is, if you like, uniting humanity under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not all humanity, it is true. But the elect, surely, we were just singing that in hymn 271. And the elect 
will be found in every nation, not just in Israel or Jerusalem. It begins there, but it spreads everywhere. And even on this day of Pentecost, there were people, there were devout men, converts to Judaism, brought to this place, to to Jerusalem. That's what the Lord's beginning to do here. He is establishing the worldwide mission of the church. That's the work of missions, making disciples of all nations. And in this, no nation is excluded. Jesus says in John, or or, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, that's already, that program has already begun here on this day. A worldwide, global organization that we call the church that knows no national boundaries. What about the Old Testament? This is a question that I always have. We see the Spirit poured out at Pentecost and we ask this question. It's a natural question. We're, we're, well, what's the difference between a New Testament believer and an Old Testament believer? Or we could even ask the question more narrowly. What's the difference between Peter on Pentecost and Peter before Pentecost? Was Peter before Pentecost devoid of the Spirit? Were the saints in the Old Testament devoid of the Spirit? Did they know nothing of the Spirit as these saints knew it on Pentecost? My answer is clearly not. And I confess I've always struggled to make this point accurately. And to be clear in my mind as to this question. But I'm never comfortable with the framing. And this is a common framing in the church. I've always encountered it but I've never been comfortable with it. The framing of the issue that makes it seem that no one had the Spirit in the Bible until Pentecost, or perhaps that only the prophets did. Well, let us see two things about the Spirit and the Old Testament before we look at the Spirit in the New Testament. One is that all believers in the Old Testament were full of the Spirit. I'm prepared to say that. There are some who are not, but I am. All believers in the Old Testament were full of the Spirit. All believers. Let me underline that thought. That of necessity. For no one is able to confess Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No man by nature is ever led to say, Jesus is my Savior. No man with Abraham is able to look forward to the coming seed who is Jesus and be glad. But by the Holy Spirit, no man has ever entered the kingdom of God. There isn't a single man who dwells in heaven now, except as he's been born by the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. And so in that sense, salvation is exactly the same in both testaments. It takes a different outward form. It's true. But in terms of the individual inworking of salvation, that's what we call the ordo salutis. It's the same in both. The spirit works faith He works repentance. He regenerates the heart of a dead sinner. That's how he saves us. The Old Testament saints in that sense were born again of the Spirit and they were full of the Spirit. Or else they could not have been saved. But the second thing I would say about the Spirit in the Old Testament is that it is clear that the prophets receive the Spirit in a special way. In a fuller and a greater measure than the ordinary believer in the Old Testament. The Spirit came down on them in such a way that they were 
uh, not only full of the Spirit, but they began to speak utterances from heaven. They were carried along, Peter says, by the Spirit to speak the very words of God. And so there's a more general work of the Spirit in the Old Testament and a special work of the Spirit. That of the ordinary believer and that of the prophets. But they were both uh, carried along by the Spirit in their own way. Now come to the New Testament, and I would make three points in answer to the two points of the Old Testament. One is that all believers in the New are similarly full of the Spirit in such a way that they are saved. We are all saved in just the same way, by the Spirit working faith in our hearts in Jesus Christ. There is no other way by which any man has ever been saved. Only more so. The measure of the Spirit given to the New Testament believer is greater than that of the Old Testament believer. Everything is better. Everything is more and so on. When you compare these two covenants, you're always able to say, along with Hebrews, it's much better. And, and, and so we can apply that same thought here. It's much better now. Unless you say, well, didn't you say they were full of the Spirit? And now you're saying we are full of the Spirit. Well, understand that the, and this is a point I will make over and again. That it is precisely the person who is full of the Spirit that you say be filled with the Spirit. And what God is really doing is he is increasing our capacity to be full of the Spirit. And so when you tell a man, uh, one man that he's full of the Spirit, the other man that he's also full of the Spirit, and yet one man seems to have the greater measure, what's the difference? The difference isn't the man with, with uh, less of the Spirit didn't have the Spirit. It's just his capacity was less. There's a greater fullness that we enjoy in the new covenant. Number two, the second thing I would say about the spirit in the new covenant. The spirit himself, this was not true in the old covenant, but in the new covenant, the spirit specifically relates himself to the formation of the church. The church herself as a spiritual body is now formed and the church as a body becomes full of the spirit. And this also tells us why the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost is no longer confined to Israel, but is for the whole world. It's because the church uh, he establishes and then fills. But third, we see the way supernatural gifts accompany the outpouring of the Spirit, just as at uh, just as in the Old Testament. The Spirit comes and the prophets prophesy. That's what we see in the Old Testament. That's also what we see in the New Testament. Only here again, it's something more, something better, something more effusive, something general, as Joel predicted. It isn't just the prophets prophesying. Now it's, uh, I, well, it's, it's like this. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Uh, I'll pour out my spirit on those days and, and on and on he goes. The second point, which was special in the Old Testament, uh, the, the coming of the Spirit with the, the outworking of gifts, becomes general in the new. Not confined solely to the prophets, but as a more general work. Which leads now to the next question, and that is, do these gifts abide with the church? The works of, well, everything that Joel outlined, seeing visions, prophesying, Speaking in tongues, working miracles. You see, at Pentecost, uh, that was a general work. In the Old Testament, only the prophets and only a few at that were capable of such things. 
the question we have is what, what now do we make of that? Do these gifts abide with the church? Well, yes and no. Certainly, <coughs> certainly the spirit abides with the church. The gift of the spirit and many of the gifts of the spirit, but not all the gifts belong in the same category. Those which are supernatural, again, those which I listed in Joel, such as tongues, prophecy and miracles. And as we find here at Pentecost in Acts and throughout Acts, do not abide. They cease with the office of the apostles as well as the closing of the canon. But that does not represent the end of the Spirit's presence or ministry with the church or even of his fullness. The vantage point of the, of the New Testament is always that the Spirit now abides with and in the church and in believers as a result of Pentecost. That is a point which Paul takes for granted. The Spirit dwells, the Spirit fills the church. He abides with the church. It's a given. But it is there in the, in the church, in the course of the church's life, following Pentecost and following uh, these foundational years of the church that you could say, and certainly history bears out this point, that the Spirit takes up a more ordinary ministry. Does that mean that we are subject to a lesser fullness? No. But it means that out of his fullness, he takes up a more ordinary ministry. Uh, one of the ways that I like to make this point is to compare Acts with Second Timothy. What do we find in Second Timothy once the work takes on what we, what we could call a more settled form? Well, we no longer find apostles. We don't find the supernatural elements that are found here at Acts. We don't find prophesying. We don't find tongues. We don't find miracles or visions. But what we do find are elders and deacons. We find the emphasis upon the preaching of the word. We find, in other words, the ministry of the Spirit in this more ordinary way, precisely the way in which we've become f familiar, the normal functioning of the church. Now, what I'm saying is we should appreciate both aspects, the foundational uh, ministry of the Spirit at Pentecost and the place of the supernatural there. But we should also appreciate our place in the, in the building, if you like, for the Spirit is building a great structure and you aren't always laying the foundation. We might find ourselves uh, much further along the way. But what is the result of all this? We're still under the second heading, key considerations. The result of this supernatural effusion of the Spirit. This is something that Luke tells us at the end. He tells us that the crowds gather. It isn't just these men who became full of the Spirit as they were praying, but they go into the streets. And we can imagine them, though it isn't entirely clear, going uh, into the temple. They... They, they take to the streets or they with Whitfield, they take to the fields and along with a Whitfield or a Wesley, what they find is that the crowds gather. I remember Morris Roberts once telling me that he did open air preaching all his life and he said no one ever bothered to stop and listen. But he knew a man who stood up once and he started preaching and the crowds instantly gathered. It was a gift from the Lord and he confessed he didn't have it. He said it's a gift only the Lord could give and yet uh, credit to him. He went on with his work. Well, here is Peter and here are these apostles. Suddenly, men never took notice of them, but now they did. 
Now there's this great general interest in what they had to say. Very similar, as I say, to the Whitfields and the Wesleys taking to the fields and the crowds coming to hear what they were saying. Only, I would say, it was something even beyond that. Something greater than what you find in the life of a Whitfield. It was an open-air service, let us call it that. Preaching in the open air to great crowds. And what you often find is just what you have here. The spirit comes with power and the crowds gather. That's always true. That is one of the unmistakable accompaniments of true revival. It isn't just that the church has changed, but that the world takes a new and sudden interest in the church. In other words, a revival isn't something you do, still less is it something you hold. You don't say, I'm going to hold a revival on such and such date. That's not what a revival is. A revival is something that happens to you very suddenly. And the result is what we see here. Not this fresh power from, not just this fresh power from heaven upon the ministers and the preachers and the hearers. But there's also a desire to hear. You see, not just a newfound desire to preach and new power to preach, but a newfound desire and a general desire to hear the preaching of the word. Though, let us see here, as we will also see in the case of a Whitfield, not without scoffing at the same time. You see, some of the men were amazed. This is amazing. I, I can't believe I'm, I'm hearing them preach the mighty acts of God in my own tongues. How did they come about this ability? And yet others at the same time were scoffing. These men were filled with new wine. You always find both things. They're brought under conviction. They're brought under the power of the gospel. And they either take notice or they scoff. And yet... I say this goes even beyond what you find in the more ordinary cases of this in history. We see something in addition which makes Pentecost unique. They were preaching to the multitudes in their own tongues. This is remarkable. This is something we don't read anywhere else in history, but we read it here. Do we appreciate the significance of this? And let us see what is meant by tongues here. We aren't reading here about well, what is sometimes called a private prayer language. Did you ever notice that that's all the charismatics ever talk about? They never talk about preaching to a man in another language. <laughs> they only ever talk about your private prayer language. Well, that's not what, what this was. It wasn't anything like that. These men were preaching in known tongues or known languages. So that they say in verse 8, And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And so they were all amazed, verse 12, and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? We find something similar, not, not the presence of tongues, but we find a similar response or reaction in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, the crowds gather to hear him preach, and when he finishes his sermon, they say, we've never heard anything like that. You see, there was a desire not only to preach, but a desire to hear. While at the same time, the element of scoffing. This is something that you find in Paul's ministry. It's something that you find throughout history. The greatest preachers that God has ever used were, were maligned in just the same way. It's inevitable that people should respond in this way when the claims of the gospel are accompanied with heavenly power as here. But that brings me to the third and final point, and that is the present application. Here's a point that I find that I'm making over and over. Let me make it again. 
Understand first what Pentecost means for you. That brings us back to the first point. Understand your share in Pentecost. Place Pentecost in the realm of the history of redemption alongside the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit. It all belongs together. Believe upon that and realize that the faith that you have is your share in Pentecost. Realize at the same time that as a result of that, that you are now capable of enjoying a spirit-filled life. In other words, I'm saying, again, understand what Pentecost means for you. Understand your share in Pentecost. But then beyond that, I would say look for such things in your own day. Things as I've been describing not only as common uh, to, uh, to the book of Acts, uh, but also to further revivals. Understand, as in Acts, that Pentecost does not preclude further fillings, but rather becomes the very basis of them. It isn't as though the fullness has come and that's the end. Rather understand that the coming of the fullness is what makes further fillings possible. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Pentecost has come. We don't call this Pentecost, but it's something that Pentecost made possible. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Acts 4.31 tells another story to those who would say, well, there's nothing beyond spirit baptism. No, I would say there is. And it's spirit baptism that makes further fillings possible rather than precluding them. A man who's full of the Spirit might pray and be filled again. Indeed, he ought to be. He ought to look for this. Paul himself, I say again, commands us, be filled with the Spirit. Be being filled with the Spirit. That's your daily duty. That's what you should always be looking for, a further fullness of the Spirit. Or, or as I keep saying, God, I'm full of the Spirit. I acknowledge that, but would you increase my capacity to be full of the Spirit? Would you cause me to mature by growing by growing me and giving me a greater measure of the spirit as a result. That's what we should always be seeking. You can tell a man and you ought to tell yourself who's full of the spirit. Be filled with the spirit. That's the point. Seek to have communion with him, as Owen says, in a still greater way. At the same time, I would say... I'm I'm encouraging us as I wrap this up to be looking not only for a greater fullness of the spirit in our own lives, but also in the church. And I'm about to say that we should look and we should pray for revival. But at the same time, I would say be discerning, be discerning, beloved, understand the difference between true revival and counterfeits. I know some of you want me to talk about Asbury. Well, I'm not going to talk about Asbury, but there's some some uh, there's some. Talk today. I'm thankful that there's talk of revival. Some of you may know some of you. Uh, well, I know some of you do, although some of you I can see by your faces you don't. But there's this talk of revival at Asbury College. You might want to look it up. My only message to you is beware of counterfeits. All of this talk of revival. Uh, well, uh, well, part of the value of it is that we might see the difference and that we might not be deluded in our interest in revival and drawn into false revival. But I would argue as I close that a proper understanding of Pentecost is not what rules out further or future revivals in the church, but what ought to give us such a great interest in the subject. 
Why is it that we find the Spirit poured out in this way, not only here, but at other times throughout the history of the church? And are we warranted in looking for the same things in our own day? I would say that we are. Let me read uh, briefly uh, a, a word from Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism. He says, And so speaking of the Spirit's work in revival, these evangelical leaders were not disparaging the reality of his normal and regular work in the church. They were far from believing that true Christianity can only spread in the manner that it did in 1740. They were simply affirming that there are times when the Spirit is given in exceptional measure and that such times may come suddenly, even when the deadness is general in the church and indifference to biblical religion prevails in society at large. This school of preachers held that the Holy Spirit has appointed means to be used for the advancement of the gospel, preeminently the teaching of the word accompanied by earnest prayer. The special seasons of mercy are are, are determined in heaven. I know I've got to wrap this thing up. Let, Let me try. Let me try to do so. Revival is not at odds with what we already believe. There are Christians, there are Reformed Christians who are not happy about the subject of revival. But I would say a, a careful study of that gives us, every, uh, gives us every reason to have an interest in this subject and to look for these things in our day. What is revival? Well, revival is the amplification of what we already know to be true. An amplification uh, of the very things that we as Reformed people believe most. Namely, the, the sovereignty of the Spirit in salvation. The grace of God in saving sinners. The futility of man. You see, revival comes along and it makes clear in a way uh, that is amplified. That salvation is the work of God and not of man. It, 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 It calls special attention to the very truths that we hold most dear. And it is based upon that understanding That I not only say that we should beware of counterfeits, but that we should pray for the real thing. We should pray for revival. That is the duty of every Christian. Not simply to pray that we as individuals would be full of the Spirit, but that the church would be filled with the Spirit from on high. Especially at such times, as we read in Murray, and I would agree, when we are aware of a general lack of power and deadness, When Christianity does not seem to have the same grip on men that it has in prior days. We have an interest in preaching, but there's no interest in hearing. The power of our witness is gone. What's missing? Well, we need the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Again, that's what we need to be praying for. Let us agree on that, at least, if if we're uncomfortable, perhaps, with the language of revival. Let us at least be agreed that the thing we need most from God is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And pray that as a result of this, that... The crowds might gather. Amen. And let us uh, sing praise to God as we close out our worship.